Michigan Liberation is a statewide network of people and organizations organizing to end the criminalization of black families and communities of color in Michigan. We envision a state without mass incarceration, mass policing, and punishment. We envision a state with the best public education in the nation, single-payer health care, and thriving black and brown communities. Here on the Respect the Rules podcast, we will lift up the stories and experiences of those impacted by mass incarceration, collective ties to the criminal legal system, and the frontline efforts to end mass incarceration. All right, everybody. Can everybody hear? Can everybody hear me? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, All right, everybody. Can. Let's get started with our discussion for tonight. Well, first of all, Miss Marjan, let's go around, introduce ourselves. I'll uh, kick us off. Hey, everyone. Um, I'm Ashley. I prefer to go by Ash, uh, pronouns she, they, and sunshine. And I'm the lead organizer on Michigan Liberation's Care Not Criminalization Campaign. Thank you, Ash. Uh, let me go back. I apologize, everybody. I'm Miss Marjan, pronouns she, her, and I'm the comps director of this amazing organization, Michigan Liberation. I'm going to go ahead and popcorn it over to Ray. Yeah, thanks, Marjan. Uh, hey, everyone. My name is Ray Lanier. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the executive director for Michigan Liberation. And I'll pass it over to Allie. And I'm Alexandria. I'm the Supreme Court organizer with Michigan Liberation. Um, I go by Allie. Uh, pronouns are she and her. All right. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Well, let's talk about who we are. We already know we're part of what? Michigan Liberation, an amazing organization. Anybody want to talk about Michigan Liberation? There's so much we can say about it, but anybody want to give everybody a quick little sentence or few about who Michigan Liberation is and who we are? Yeah, I can get us started. Um, you know, first thing that comes to mind for me, grassroots, power building, uh, focused on ending mass incarceration and uh, leadership. Hey, that's good. Anybody else want to chime in real quickly? Yeah, um, I'll chime in. I, I would also say, who are we? We are a bridge to uplift the underserved and those whose voices aren't heard to make sure that they are heard. We're that bridge to, you know, to the bridge to power. Yeah, and I think the last thing I'll add on top of that is um, we are fighting to end mass incarceration uh, through the fundamentals of abolitionist organizing. Hey, that's what's up. Everybody, if you're listening, watching, please put your comments in the comments section of Facebook or YouTube, please. We wanna be, want you to be engaged with this conversation tonight. And our conversation tonight, let's, you guys wanna go ahead and get straight into the nitty gritty? Let's jump into it. Okay. Well, tonight's topic is bullets, brutality and body bags. A conversation on Detroit policing, mental health and public safety and everything. So, all right, I just wanna make sure everybody knows what we're gonna be talking about and everything. So let's go ahead 
and start with the first thing. We already talked about who we are, but why are we here tonight? Okay. And I, I'm just going to open it up on the floor. Why are, you know, we called this conversation or discussion very last minute, but it's something that we definitely need to discuss with the public. So I'll let whoever wants to go first talk about why we are here tonight. Yeah, I'll jump in and um, feel free to add anything, Ray or Ali. So we're here and like part of what called this discussion together was the recent killing of the 20-year-old young man by BPD who was living with mental health considerations. And this is at least the third time in three years where something like this has been public or at least made public and enough is enough. Like death and incarceration are not the answers for getting help for people with mental health considerations. Right, okay, thanks for that, Ashley. Anybody else wanna chime in while we're here tonight? Uh, I guess for me, just what keeps coming to my mind is uh, that this wasn't the first time they responded. It, it, it's there multiple times and we constantly hear the narrative of community policing works, you know, from law enforcement and, and from a lot of elected officials. And, and that's often the go-to in these situations or just in general policing, I guess. But, um, you know, this is an example of how it is not. They have had encounters with this man prior to now. They have so-called built a relationship like they quote unquote say they do when they do community policing and that did not work. And it's just trying, time to try something different. You can't keep doing the same thing. Okay, all right. Yeah, um, and I don't know if we like specifically said it, but I just wanna say, um, yeah, say that this young man um, should, should not have died. Um, you know, we often talk about in this org when we, when we bring up concepts like abolition, um, how it's not necessarily about anarchy. It's actually about getting the support uh, you expect when you make the call. Um, police are not just responding to hardened criminals, right? Hard crime on the street. Oftentimes they're responding to family disturbances, um, situations where caregivers and loved ones only have the police to call. Um, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of times it results in instances like this. Um, the fact that this young person was shot with multiple clips um, for a mental health response um, is unbelievable and it's unacceptable. Um, and then for uh, later responses to dig into this young man's past who clearly has needed support, whose family has clearly struggled getting adequate support to justify the execution of this man um, is unbelievable and unacceptable. And I think the last thing that I'll mention is, um, I think there've been reports, there may have been a social worker uh, on the scene it really makes me question who had power in that situation. There's been a lot of talks around policing and having mental health counselors on the scene. Well, here we go. Are the police actually uh, empowering 
these non-lethal support systems to act um, in ways that are in accordance with their skill set. I don't think that this situation says that. Um, I'm also, quite frankly, uh, questioning uh, Police Chief White, who prides himself as being both a licensed social worker and a cop mm. who has been charged, felt himself charged to change the culture of Detroit policing after they were sued for um, unscrupulous uh, dealings with their narcotics unit, after they were sued um, and had a restraining order put out on them in 2020. Here we are in another year with multiple instances of folks getting shot, people asking for help and ending up uh, dead. So I know we're gonna like dig, dig into a lot of this, but as a community you know, member, um, a person who is deeply invested in building thriving communities. Um, I'm just saying that the math is not mathing. Um, yeah, I'll pass it back to you, Marjan. Yeah, you know, let's, you're right, let's dig into it. Let's get into like the history of policing and mental health and substance use, if you don't mind, everybody. If we can start kind of giving some, some theory or some a history lesson for the folks that are watching and everything and please everybody make sure if you got any comments questions put it in the comment section of facebook or youtube all right and we will put it on the screen yes we, this is a interaction this is not us just preaching to you and talking to you we want to get in a conversation with you as well so go ahead i apologize y'all go ahead what is the state of play so I think some interesting things to talk about is some of the statistics, right? So in 2021, according to the police violent report, 57% of killings by police, um, which equaled roughly about to 598 deaths, were traffic stops and police responses to mental health crises uh, in situations where you know no one was being threatened. And I also think it's important to note that nationally um roughly 42 percent of police killings are people who live with mental health considerations and have a diagnosis so just imagine all the other ones that haven't quite been diagnosed because in a lot of bipoc communities that we there's a lot of folks who are undiagnosed you know there's really no access to health insurance or a psychiatrist or therapy to actually get these diagnoses. And a lot of them are also living every day in unsavory environments that, you know, bring out PTSD and anxiety and depression, but they're just walking around and it's undiagnosed. Um, so that's one thing that comes to mind and talks about like the state of things nationally and in the state or even locally, like a lot of people are dying just due to the fact that they live with mental health considerations. And that's that's unacceptable. We we need we need more access to treatment. Here in Michigan, there are only five state-ran um, mental health hospitals, and they're a nice ways away from where most BIPOC communities are. And on top of that, there's only 20 mental health centers throughout the state in a state that has 84 counties. So that's vastly underserved. Wow. So, Ashley, let me stop you for a minute. You mean to tell me five mental health hospitals, 20 health 
facilities and we've got what over 84 counties in michigan yes A 83 counties 83 okay thank you ray so let's just really dig into that you, you don't have to be a math genius to know that something's met really messed up with those numbers it's a setup right absolutely oh go ahead oh, you got it ellie oh um yeah i was gonna say even uh like if you look to our past our past um you know it'll help you understand how today echoes that in terms of how discrimination and and um mental health intersect like you see today uh, i saw something that the cdc said where 50 percent um of individuals be diagnosed with mental illness in their lifetime and when you understand that and then understand like where mental health is now in the world understanding that you know a lot of mental health developments didn't come around to the 50s 60s and 70s you know wow. then you'll understand that there is a community not being served because around those times in the 50s you have the 1964 civil rights act you have voting rights act you have all these ways that that things start to become accessible to black and BIPOC communities and you know connecting that with redlining everything that follow it helps you understand why we are here today and that we need to do better yeah i mean i'll chime in um and add that uh so there are 83 counties in the state of michigan uh we live in wayne um which is one of them and yet Wayne County uh, provides, I think a little bit over 30% of the Michigan Department of Corrections inhabitants, right? Their incarcerated population. One county out of 83 providing a third of the population for the state prison system. When you talk about the, the five facilities that are available statewide and other 20 providers, where are they at? They're not, they're not Wayne County, right? Um, and I'd be willing to bet that the, the counties that do have those mental health facilities do not have the same disparities when it comes to over-policing and the over-incarceration um, and degradation of these communities. Um, you know, the other thing that I wanna add is, um, keep that 30% in your mind, Michigan Department of Corrections currently is the largest mental health provider in the state. Wow. It is the largest mental health provider in the state. You can talk to folks who have loved ones incarcerated. You can talk to people that have just come out. They will let you know. A lot of folks just couldn't get the help that they were able to get out on the streets, right? And it wasn't until they got to prison where they got a sliver of that in those conditions. Like when we talk about where are we putting our money, where our mouth is, when we're talking about prioritizing public safety, it needs to be, you know, in other facilities. There needs to be an abundance of these facilities and support. And yet we see the majority of this funding going to bullets, authorizing brutality, paying for body bags. Um, and I think tonight is really a pause um, so that we can lift that up and recognize that and talk about transformative ways we can actually be investing in our loved ones, ourselves, and our community. Okay. Cool, Ray. Thank you for that. Thank you. You know, and everybody who's watching, you know, people are starting to log on is and realize this is just something we decided to do at the last minute because we realize we are 
um, in a state of emergency, if you want to call it. You know what I mean? And that brings me to the next subtopic. Who is accountable? You know, <clears throat> is accountable. I mean, and let's really dog walk that through everybody. I mean, is it the police? Is it mental health um, professionals? Is it city council, the mayor? So, Hell, us? So <laughs> to answer that question, you know, I would say all of the above, like the system. And I would oftentimes say even communities sometimes have failed a lot of these people. Like for one, I say community because we oftentimes we don't have these conversations about, you know, one substance usage or if they live with mental health considerations. Like that's something we tend to sweep under the rug. But on the grander scale of things, so many systems that are supposed to be in place to help keep people safe, to help keep people whole and, and right. heal people are accountable. So yes, the police are accountable. The police are currently to raise 30, uh, what was it, 33% roughly, 25% of folks who are incarcerated have a diagnosed mental health consideration. Again, and those that are diagnosed. So if 30% of the people come from Wayne County, just the numbers, the math is not math incorrect, as Ray said. You know, the, the police commission is accountable because, you know, instead of listening to community on how they want to spend money, they're, they're spending it in, in ways that are just more punitive. They're buying these these fancy, you know, tanks and helicopters and drones and all of these other things when they could be, you know, taking a percentage uh, of their of their funds and moving it to creating something like a non-police crisis unit, um, crisis response unit. City council is needs to be held accountable. Um, the mayor, the mayor needs to be held accountable. MDHHS, MDHHS needs to be held accountable because, you know, they're one of the largest providers of health insurance, especially, you know, in the city of Detroit um, with Medicaid. And there's not many places or psychiatrists or therapy places that, you know, accept Medicaid. So where, where can people go? You know, Medicaid only covers three days of substance use, you know, treatment. And even like the education system, we need to have like something along the lines of like, we have health classes in schools, but people equate health to just the physical body, the physical being. But in order to have a physical body and physical being, you need to have a, a healthy mind as well. And a lot of kids and, and young folks, you know, don't recognize that they're dealing with depression or don't recognize that they're dealing with anxiety or maybe even something deeper. There's no knowledge. And the parents also don't know. And schools have a tendency to be like this community center, right? You know, so many schools give away food, um, you know, so, so families can eat. They're like a hub for resources, but there are no resources when it comes to mental health. Um, and yeah, I'm gonna get off my soapbox and pass it to anyone else, you know, who wants to hop in and say who else should be accountable. Wow. Let me, you know what? Let me popcorn it over, Ash, to Allie, because you come from the mental health profession. You know what I'm saying? That's one thing that's missing. You know what I'm saying? Even in the recent incident, you know, you got the police and you got the family. 
And then the police is blaming the mental health system. The, the family then probably used the mental health system. So can you tell us a little bit about their accountability? I got my hands moving and everything. I, the juices are flowing, y'all. Uh, yeah, um, so all parties involved need to be held accountable. So whether mental health um, facilities, schools, or, um, you know, other parts of government, uh, what Ashley was saying, I completely agree. All parties involved need to be held accountable. It's really about having the right system in place, the right resources for the situation. And understanding everybody's situation is different and that the patient or the, the person um, experiencing mental distress have autonomy and freedom. You know, a lot of times it, the person in need isn't listened to when we're told or that individual is told this is care for you. And, and that's what policing is. It's being told this is care and it is the only kind of care that you deserve, which is it's false. And in fact, um, uh, any mental health professional will tell you that punishment and being used in a behavioral health setting is frowned upon. And, and I know, you know, um, from practicing behavioral health therapy, even when you are using applied behavior analysis and you're using reinforcement and there's reinforcement uh, positive and then there's, uh, there's also punishment. Even to try to apply punishment, you need the parent's permission and it's you're never supposed to do it with, like you're never supposed to go to that without consulting with other clinicians, like it's a no-no. Um, and it's completely frowned upon. So, you know, what I'm saying is all these tools exist. There's a lot of things that exist that city government, Detroit can look at. There's the STAR mental health program that is uh, decreasing the crimes in their city and actually giving people mental health care. There is the CAHOOTS program, mental health program. There are so many of them that, that are thriving and that's what makes it worse is that they're not trying to invest in an independent mental health program when there there's some that are out there for them. Wow. Wow. Okay. So for to break that down, just to recap a little bit, Allie, and I'm putting this is not just Allie, I'm not gonna put her on the spot, but so you're saying in a situation, let's just say real quick before we go into um care not criminalization, Ashley's baby, we're gonna talk about okay, I have a situation, I'm at home right? Real talk, y'all. I'm at home. I got a brother in the next room going ham, like just, you know, he's having an episode. What we always do, call what? 911, right? So you're saying that we're looking at, we should have other options besides just calling the police because the police is not working. You, Because we already know when you call the police, you're either going out in a body bag or to jail. You're not even making it to the mental uh, facility, center, nothing probably, right? Is that what we're dealing with? And we, we're here to discuss that's not working. Could yeah. we maybe like touch touch on Oregon um, and how they handle these type of circumstances? Yeah, absolutely. I was literally just about to jump in. I think in order to answer that, like we, we need to talk about this, right? So CAHOOTS, the CAHOOTS program for those who don't know, um, CAHOOTS is an acronym for Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets. And it was a program that was started um, 
a few years back in, in Oregon. And um, what they do is they're a non-police crisis uh, call. And yearly, they answer roughly about 4,000 calls. And so far, according to their statistics since 2019, only 311 of those ended up needing police backup. So they send, they send uh, social workers out to the scene. They send out to the scene. They send people who have over five, 600 hours worth of training with mental health uh, considerations onto the scene. And, you know, it's a voluntary base, so they can't force anyone, you know, to go get help. But most of their calls do result in that person on the scene getting in their van, unhandcuffed and alive, whether they have weapons, whether they don't. The cahoots folks who go out on the scene, they don't have any weapons. And they, they go take the person to go get the treatment that they may need. And I think some interesting things about Kahoot is that to they just increased their funding by like almost 200,000, but it's only 2% of the Eugene Police Department's budget. And so for that specific police department, you know, it only is roughly about a couple million, I, I believe, annually, again, only 2% of their, their police department's budget. And since this program has been around, there has been less arrests. There has been less police-involved shootings. There has been more people being able to live another day and to heal another day. And when thinking about this in Detroit, now in Detroit, if I'm not mistaken, I believe it's two precincts that are supposed to have a crisis response unit. And as we've seen with the young man a few days ago, crisis response unit showed up on the team, but it was with police. And now this man who should be alive isn't. So we definitely need to take the police response because the police, you know, especially when someone, when they're in like a heightened sense or state, you know, those flashing lights, those, those um, uniforms, those guns are all triggering and traumatizing for somebody who's already in a state of crisis which when a person's in a state of crisis and they see something that for them is threatening, it, it tends to you know, lift up the aggression. So if we were to take roughly 2% of DPD's budget, their yearly budget is 300, roughly around $343 million. 330 million. 330 million. So 2% wow. of that is roughly about a little over $6 million. $6 million out of that extreme budget can go to something that will be proven to have to make uh, have less incarceration. It'll be proven to keep people alive and healthy. And, you know, another interesting thing about that is, too, is that the police were just asking, you know, to spend ARPA funds, the COVID relief funds, on, on ShotSpotter which is just gonna have more police go into these crises or go into these different situations ready to, to bear arms when they can take that ARPA money and fully fund this. They can take the surplus money that they have and fully fund this. So the money is there. Wow. Michigan Liberations Respect the Roots. Coming next week, part two of the Bullets, Brutality, and Body Bags. 
a conversation on Detroit policing, mental health, and public safety. Make sure you tune in next week. Michigan Liberation Education Fund, C3, conducts grassroots organizing, leadership development, and civic engagement activities. Michigan Liberation C4 and Michigan Liberation Action Fund, IE, are sister organizations.